0: The great power competition with the United States is of course playing out in our region. And a number of countries feel pressure that they will at some point have to choose between the United States and China. And Australia is for the first time in its history, in a rather unusual situation.
1: Welcome back to another season of One Decision Podcast. I'm Julia McFarlane, and I'm really excited to be co-hosting today's episode with the former chief of MI6, Britain's secret intelligence service, Sir Richard Dearlove. Hello, Sir Richard, how are you?
2: I'm very well, Julia.
1: Julie Bishop was foreign minister between 2013 and 2018 and in that time she led the development of the Australian foreign policy white paper published in 2017 at a period of great change. It was the first white paper and recalibration of Australia's international engagement in 14 years. Now in that time of course there had been massive challenges to globalisation and shifts in strategic power meaning of course the growing force and assertiveness of a rising China. All of this had a profound impact on Australia, a key Western defence ally located in an increasingly contested region. Now, we have a fascinating episode coming up because Sir Richard was in the interviewer chair today and he had a fascinating chat with the former Foreign Minister of Australia, Julie Bishop, on some pretty big decisions she made whilst in office that helped to shape the region. Let's dive straight into Julie and Sir Richard's discussion.
2: Hi, Julie. How are you?
0: Hello, Sir Richard. I'm oh, very well indeed.
2: OK, well, the, the, you know, this is the we call the One Decision podcast. And the one decision I wanted to focus on with you was your um, foreign policy white paper of 2017 um, in the latter stages of your time in office as Australian foreign minister and the evolution of Australia's foreign policy really as an indo-pacific power um i mean a lot has happened since that paper was written and obviously uh, the the key to it maybe is australia's relations with china but I, I i'm very interested in you know how you now see that decision and what the consequences have been
0: it is interesting to look back over the last few years we published a white paper in November of 2017. And from the outset of my time as Foreign Minister back in September 2013, I wanted to refocus Australia's outlook and integrate the Indian Ocean with the Asia Pacific in terms of our Uh, foreign policy attention in economic security and foreign affairs and for Australia to think in truly Indo-Pacific terms. And it is fair to say that the Indian Ocean part of our foreign policy remains a work in progress. But I think it's worth noting that Australia is bounded to the east and to the west by two of the world's great oceans, the Pacific and the Indian. Yet we traditionally focus more on the Pacific. Yet Australia has the largest maritime jurisdiction of any state in the Indian Ocean. That's fascinating because
2: personally, I've never really thought about Australia as a naval power. But you have put the emphasis very much on its sort of oceanic position. I mean, the particular thing I'm fascinated by is on the one hand, you have China there as a key trading partner. And on the other hand now, we have a China which is becoming very autocratic, which has you know, violated the democratic rights of the people of Hong Kong, uh, which is behaving um, particularly towards Australia, let's say over the issue of the pandemic, in an incredibly aggressive fashion. How do we sort of balance these two rather extraordinary developments
0: now? Since Xi Jinping became president, we have seen a much more assertive China, indeed aggressive in some instances, and we've heard and observed uh, their wolf warrior diplomacy, which has been um, startling in some instances. The great power competition with the United States is, of course, playing out in our region, and a number of countries feel uh, pressure that they will at some point have to choose between the United States and China. And Australia is, for the first time in its history, in a rather unusual situation that our major trading partner, China, is in serious competition with our major strategic defence and intelligence ally, the United States. Now, China, we have a massive trade surplus with China. So, unlike the United States, which has a massive trade deficit, we are hugely reliant on the Chinese economy and Chinese um, and exporting to China. However, in recent years, it's become quite apparent to us that Australia should not put all our eggs in one basket and that we should seek to diversify our exports. And now that has been forced upon us because in some instances, China has sought to make an example of Australia by putting up tariffs and making it very difficult for us to export to China. In areas that are quite challenging, uh, wine and beef and other agricultural products, China continues to buy commodities that they clearly need and want, like iron ore and lithium and the like. But in areas where they can source them elsewhere, Australia is being singled out, not the only country, but we're certainly feeling singled out uh, for punishment because of various um, transgressions, according to China, that Australia has uh, been guilty of. In fact, the Chinese ambassador in Canberra published a list of 14 areas of dispute with Australia. Um, In each instance, China expected Australia to change our policy, which of course, no self-respecting sovereign nation will do. So at a government to government level, relations with China are tense. However, at a business to business level in certain sectors of our economy, uh, life has continued um, as it was pre these challenges.
2: In the longer term, is it going to be possible to square this circle? I I mean, you've referred to your strategic alliance with the United States, and I'm thinking of the fact you've got a marine base up in Darwin now. You've got the Pine Gap um, installation, which is crucial to, let's say, Western coverage of China. Um, You have got the AUKUS deal. Um, which you know has had so much publicity recently. That's the deal to switch to American-built um, nuclear-powered submarines, not nuclear-armed submarines. And uh, all of this, you know, is um, uh, you could argue very you know provocative to the Chinese. And at the same time, you know, your your economy or aspects of your economy are absolutely totally tied to the Chinese market. Um yes. is it, is, is it it's possible? It's a balancing
0: act, yeah. It's it's always been a balancing act. However, I think with China being more assertive in its foreign policy, uh, while ever Xi Jinping is president and that is their stance, it's going to be very difficult for Australia. But in my view, Australia and China must re-establish a more constructive dialogue and a a broader relationship. I mean, we're not the only country that has had uh, difficult relations with China. Japan, South Korea other nations from time to time and of course China's claims in the South China Sea are disputed by about eight nations in the region. Australia is not one of the affected nations but of course so much of our trade does pass through the South China Sea so we are deeply committed to um, open seas, uh, open skies policies, freedom of navigation and that's where we have in the past had disputes with China for example, when there was an um, UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, arbitration between the Philippines and China, China refused to take part in this UN arbitration. I always find that ironic given that China is a permanent member of the Security Council of the United Nations and has a particular responsibility, I believe, to uphold uh, the international law and the norms and protocols from the United Nations. But nevertheless, they refused to be joined in this arbitration the arbitration found in favor of the philippines and china has ignored it so the I mean, interpretation
2: of international law has always been or appears to be highly subjective
0: oh yes one can cherry pick but i've i've i used to make the point often to my counterparts in both china and russia that as permanent members of the un security council they have a particular responsibility to uphold peace, stability and security around the world, and that means committing to and defending the uh, rules-based international order. But it seems that in both instances, both in the case of Russia and China, they pick and choose those parts that they seek to abide by and those that they don't. So It will be interesting to see how Xi Jinping is able to maintain this grip on power. I've not yet seen um, evidence that he's losing power um, losing it. But China's future is facing many hurdles, many challenges. Its inexorable rise is not inevitable. Uh, I think there are uh, many um, bridges to cross before China could be seen as a superpower in the nature of the United States. When you look at the United States military power, its maritime supremacy is unrivaled. It would take um, a great deal for any other country, indeed any other collection of countries, to rival the United States. I think the other important aspect to this is that the United States' strength also lies in its network of alliances around the world. The United States can call on many nations um, around the globe to support their foreign policy Um, interventions to support them in the UN, to support uh, the US around the world. China does not have alliances of that nature. And that, I think, really focuses on the difference. In our part of the world, nations are looking for more US leadership, not less. And very few would want to live in a region where the uh, Chinese government was calling the shots.
2: You, yes, you. I think you referred to United States, maybe uh, when you were foreign minister, as the indispensable strategic partner. Well, I think that's the phrase you used. Yes. How do, you, how do you think that um, Trump's uh, era, as it were, affected um, that assessment?
0: Well, it is interesting when you think back to 2001, when China joined the World Trade Organization, that was a milestone, but it was also a moment when I think collectively the Western liberal democracies believed that China was becoming like they were, that China was opening its markets and that therefore opening its economy and that political reform would follow. To be fair, 2001 uh, was September 11 and President George Bush's focus was on terrorism, Afghanistan, Iraq, and not on what China was doing. When President Obama came in in 2008, to be fair, his focus was very much on the global economic crisis, But all the while, China was becoming more and more economically powerful and less and less open in the political sense. I mean, China was moving away from any democratic reform, not moving towards it. And so by the time of the 2016 presidential election, President Obama was trying to uh, hedge with China, for example, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, was going to be the economic manifestation of Obama's pivot to our part of the world. Yet neither candidate, neither candidate Clinton nor candidate Trump embraced the Trans-Pacific Partnership because of its unpopularity in Congress, and that was an opportunity lost because I feel that had the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, been completed with the United States as the major economy, that would have given nations in our region assurance that the United States was here to stay. The United States would not be missing in action. Then President Trump campaigned and delivered on his America First policy. There was a great uh, fear in our part of the world that America First meant America only. But he did refocus the allies' attention, particularly NATO, on ensuring that people didn't take the United States' support for granted. It did concern allies. I mean, even Australia had a, had a dispute with President Trump over steel tariffs and the like. But over time it did make countries perhaps appreciate the umbrella that the United States does provide. Um, President Trump, for all his faults, and there were many, did achieve two remarkable foreign policy outcomes. I recall by the end of 2016, I was almost convinced that relations between the United States and North Korea had so deteriorated that there would be some kind of military intervention. In fact, I remember having a conversation with the then Secretary of State Rex Tillerson about the very idea. It, it was an appalling uh, prospect, but nevertheless, North Korea had, had continued on its nuclear proliferation path, and President Trump made all sorts of threatening noises. Remember, he called him Little Rocket Man and was being very provocative. Yes, I and remember that. Then, then suddenly. President Trump turned the whole thing on its head and had a meeting with um, Kim Jong-un. It was just extraordinary. And to this day, North Korea is still a, um, a belligerent disruptor, but we haven't had military intervention in North Korea. So you have to say, well, President Trump did call the bluff and then the Abraham Accords I think is one of the most significant foreign policy initiatives I've seen in the Middle East for quite some time. I mean, John Kerry, as Secretary of State, focused so much of his time, effort and energy on Israel and the Middle East, but it came to little. And so you have to say, if the Abraham Accords, Abraham Accords stay together and hold together, then that is quite a foreign policy triumph. I mean, how
2: do you view um, that, as it were, particular alignment in the Middle East now and I mean to what extent is it relevant to Australia's uh, interests?
0: Well uh, I I think that we lost an opportunity with Iran back after September 11. I feel that uh, you will recall that at the end of that year there was a, a kind of a global sense we're all American now. Iran was part of that we're all American now and then Iran Um, Iraq and North Korea were lumped together as the the axis of evil. I I think that was a a lost opportunity with Iran at that time uh, because they have resorted to playing the role of disruptor. Australia did support the the nuclear deal with Iran. We thought that it was um, better to have Iran in the tent negotiating than not. Uh, So we were disappointed when President Trump walked away from that. Um, I visited Iran for a very specific purpose and that was to uh, explain why Australian troops were in Iraq because we knew that Iran was very close to the um, Iraqi military and government and I didn't want there to be any mistake as to uh, their response to Australian troops being on the ground in Iraq. Uh, I also was expecting that uh, relations between the United States and Iran could improve um, under future presidents and I wanted to ensure that uh, Australia, because we've maintained an embassy in Iran throughout, we've never packed up and gone home, so we we have an embassy there and I wanted to make sure that Australia was seen in a very positive light. We used to have a massive... Uh, well, very important trading relationship with Iran, student exchange and the like, and there are many Iranians living in Australia. But, of course, since I was there, we also had some issues about uh, some Iranians who were seeking asylum, um, trying to come to Australia, and under our then policy, those Iranians were uh, in a detention centre in Papua New Guinea and that was a very unsatisfactory situation. So they'd been found not to have a, cl- a valid claim for asylum, and yet Iran was refusing to take them back. So that was a, another issue that was very much in Australia's national interest for my visit to Iran. But it was um, it was not as if I was taking sides or anything like that in uh, the no, iran that's, that's
2: fascinating because it actually illustrates the sort of multi dimensional nature of Australian foreign policy and how the reach of Australia is perhaps much bigger, and uh, in some respects more influential um, than. Well, Australia,
0: Australia was in Australian <laughs> troops in Afghanistan from yeah. two thousand one. They were in Iraq from two thousand three. Uh, we assisted with Syria, so you know we, we've had um, our our defence force personnel in the Middle East for a very, very long time. So what happens there is of great concern to us.
2: The trick question that people often ask is which country has fought with the United States in every war since World War Two, and of course, Australia. the answer to that question is Australia. Everyone thinks it's the UK, but it's not. No,
0: because no, no. Of, we, the UK wasn't in. You we weren't were in
2: Vietnam. Yeah, no. Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the sort of proposition. I mean, you. I wanted to just to touch on Russia and Ukraine i mean you have been very involved with that issue because of um the leading role you played in mh17 and the investigation to the follow up yes. of that um, killing i think it included 38 australian nationals were, were on the yes. aircraft um I
0: mean, two hundred and ninety-eight passengers and crew yeah. were killed on MH seventeen, and thirty eight were Australian citizens or permanent residents. Yeah, I mean, how how do you see the situation
2: now with Ukraine, which is extremely, you know, worrying given the amount of build up on the border with Russia? And there's been it's been suggested to me that we could face a dual crisis. Um, in 2022 with 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 China moving against Taiwan and Ukraine, Russia moving against Ukraine, in a, I wouldn't say in a coordinated fashion, but the timing would happen so that you would have a double global crisis. Do you think there's a risk of that um, or?
0: Uh, Russia has been uh, building up to this for many years. Uh, prior to 2014 when MH17 occurred and it has its roots in the fact that NATO was uh, getting very close to Russia's borders because if Ukraine joined NATO then there would be a there would be a, a NATO nation on its border and president putin was obviously going to avoid that at any cost so having the so-called Russian-backed rebels in um, eastern Ukraine had been building for some time. When MH17 occurred, uh, Russia's deniability about its role in eastern Ukraine was exposed for the world to see. Up until that time, Russia kept saying, oh, these are just your rebels, insurgents who want to be part of Mother Russia and they're being They're being um, oppressed by uh, the Poroshenko government. But when MH17 was shot down, it became quite clear that, in fact, there were Russian troops, Russian military. The men in green jumpsuits were, in fact, not Ukrainian farmers. They were uh, Russian military. And so MH17 was uh, possibly one of the worst things that could have occurred to putin's plan in relation to ukraine at that time mind you because the world's focus has been on eastern ukraine for some time they have denied all involvement they have run a very strong and powerful propaganda machine against the independent investigations against nations like the netherlands and australia and others who just want to hold those responsible to account and they've stymied every effort through the United Nations. Again, here's an example where Russia is a permanent member of the UN Security Council and unrelentingly uses its veto to ensure that it can never be the subject of uh, of UN action. Um, that's another. That's another podcast on what we do about the single veto in the Security Council, because there are five nations on earth no. <laughs> that can control what the rest of us do. I. <sighs> I guess the added complication with China and Taiwan is uh, what would the U.S. do uh, should China um, act aggressively toward Taiwan? It, it's, it, I mean, the U.S. has legislation uh, that uh, calls it to protect Taiwan in the event of intervention. I keep hoping that the consequences would be so dire that Neither China nor Russia would uh, would take this step of military intervention. It, the yeah, I think I agree with you. I,
2: I, I mean, uh,
0: consequence, I, I, the consequences would be huge, huge, not yeah. just not just sanctions, not just sanctions, but it could be it would um, change the dynamic in the globe as we know it. And I, I think that even neither President Putin nor President Xi Jinping can rely absolutely on their populations to follow them with that kind of folly. Do you have
2: any intention of returning to politics? You seem to me to be very much still engaged?
0: No, I don't. I am very happy in the private sector. I've really enjoyed my time out of politics, and I must say it I don't envy anyone being in politics during a global pandemic. Look, I I found um, being Foreign Minister of Australia one of the most challenging yet satisfying and fulfilling roles I could have ever undertaken. I was privileged to serve in the role. It was an honour to be Australia's Foreign Minister and I found that our voice was heard on the global stage. Sure, we're a, a small nation by population, but we're a significant economy. We're in the G20 and we've always pulled our weight in regional and global affairs so to be Foreign Minister of Australia was truly a joy.
2: Reflecting on that interview, I, I, I think it was extremely, for me, significant in a way, because what Julie Bishop was talking about um, was m- the sort of maturity of Australian foreign policy, the way it has moved from really being considered uh a part of the Anglosphere, you know, an ally of the UK, a close ally of the United States. And suddenly you see it maturing in self-confidence and developing its own independent thinking uh, about how it will conduct itself in its geographical region.
1: I think maybe a lot of us in the in the UK or the United States, we probably take for granted Australia's locality, uh, you know, it's it's part of the Western world, but it's located nowhere near the West. And as such, at this moment in time, when China is becoming increasingly the dominant foreign policy issue for a lot of Western nations, the situation is perhaps the most pressing for Australia, given that it's right on China's doorstep. And so Richard, you talk about Australia's emergence on the global scene. It's been an emergence that it's been forced to make, has it not, uh, given we have seen the United States in, in recent years stepping back uh, from its position as the global policeman?
2: One always thinks of Australia and the UK in terms of sport um, and rumbustious domestic politics, uh, and perhaps, you know, as a commodity supplier, uh to a whole host of nations which import its commodities um agricultural and 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 its mineral wealth but one hasn't really thought of the australia as a defense power one hasn't really thought of them uh, as a big security player but um it, it 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 really did strike me uh that during this period 2013 to 2018 Uh, these considerations um, of the strategic role they're going to play on the Pacific Rim really do come to the fore. And I I mean, thinking further about it, of course, maybe we should be thinking of Australia as a continental power in its own right, because, of course, it is, you know, the fifth continent. And um, it it, it does have this massive geographical presence because, you know, it is so huge. Of course because of its uh, mineral wealth, which I'm sure is massively undeveloped. I mean, you know, China is eyeing this continent in a very, I think, predatory fashion and has paid, when we weren't really paying attention ourselves, has paid huge attention strategically and politically to Australia. Uh, And I think it's really as a consequence of that, that probably was the catalyst or the trigger for what um, Judith Bishop was talking about in my in, 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 you know in this 2017 white paper when you see this really fundamental shift in Australian thinking
1: right and she mentioned in your interview that China is an incredibly important trading partner for Australia but they have had a little bit of an uncomfortable relationship particularly in recent years and I mean, at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, Australia was extremely outspoken uh, in its desire for a international investigation into the origins of the pandemic. Uh, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, suggesting that we should have uh, inspectors uh, akin to, to weapons inspectors uh, in China to, take, to undergo an investigation as to how the pandemic may have started. And the Chinese reacted extremely unhappily to that um and uh, you had all sorts of things like the chinese ambassador in canberra warning that the chinese consumers might boycott australian goods and uh, there was the, an embarrassing leak of a, of a telephone conversation with the australian department of Department of Trade, that was very embarrassing to the Scott Morrison government. Uh, I think a Chinese official even likened Australia as to a piece of gum stuck on the heel of Chinese of China's shoe. Uh, and so it was interesting to hear Julie talk about the need to have a good working relationship with China, given that that there's so much uh, so much trade at stake, and yet you have China. Um, behaving in a way with this wolf trap diplomacy that she mentioned in your interview, where it tries to sort of be coercive in its attempt to influence other countries' foreign policy to policy that is more favourable to Beijing?
2: Yeah, well, I think I, I rather admire, well, I very much admire the way that the Australian government have been prepared to go out on a limb, particularly on the issue of COVID and the causes of the pandemic. Um, I happen myself to firmly believe that it is a lab escapee and the pandemic started, you know, uh, as a result of gain of function experiments that that went wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, the Australian government was vociferous and I think its instincts were right in demanding, you know, that there should be an international inquiry, but of course, They then paid a very high political price for that, with the Chinese coming back and really trying to slap them down in a most disgraceful fashion. But, you know, that is the nature of China's behaviour when China's aggravated. And I must say that, you know, I don't think that necessarily worked to China's advantage because it seems to me it's, it's sort of forfeiting the manner in which in the past it, it benefited from soft power. And, uh, you know, its sort of softly, softly way of dealing with international relations, it was much more cautious. But, you know, it, it really took the gloves off in responding to the Australians and threatening them in a quite extraordinary way. And, of course, it has um, embargoed certain um, ex- Australian exports. But, I mean, what Judy Bishop said during the interview was that, in fact, a lot of the uh, particularly agricultural ex- exports just the, the trade is so intense it's so wide uh, it's so varied it's so important to china as a source of uh, basic foods and luxuries um i mean luxury commodities that um i, I there hasn't actually been much uh, effect in that general area but you can see china's been very threatening um and i guess we'll continue to be so. But but somehow, um, you know, the Australians, I think, understand that they have to explore a way of living with China whilst retaining the ability to be critical of its policies, critical of its behaviour.
1: Um, there was a sentence in her white paper that struck me, um, and it read, in the United States, there is greater debate about the costs of sustaining its global leadership. And it goes on to stress the need to build ties with other closer regional allies uh, in Southeast Asia, in the Pacific, Now, that paper was published in the first year of President Trump's America First style of leadership. But back in 2017, when Julie Bishop was working on this, we were already starting to see the beginning of the U.S. questioning its role as the global policeman. So allies including key defence and intelligence sharing allies like Australia, they may not want to admit it, but they are starting to realise they can no longer truly depend solely on the support of the United States, right? And will Australia be willing to be the West's aircraft carrier in the Pacific against China as a bulwark against China when they when they are starting to see the US as increasingly unreliable?
2: Well, it's a good question and a very challenging one. But I frankly, Find it very hard to imagine the Australians, as it were, b- beginning to distance themselves um, from the Western sort of defense alliance. You've now got um, US marine detachments up in Darwin. So, for the first time, you've got US troops on Australian soil stationed there permanently. You've got the uh, massive. Um, uh installation which is uh, partly nsa at pine gap uh and and that's really important because yeah well it's it's an intercept uh, intelligence site and um it's 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 hugely important strategically to the u.s and to the western alliance because of its position uh geo, geopolitical position well its geographical location um and i mean I spent a you fair amount a of bit
1: more about what Pine Gap does.
2: Um, you,
1: you say it's a, it's an intercept for for a layman like me. Uh, <laughs> what exactly does that entail?
2: Um, intercept.
1: <laughs> so, so, so a spy satellite listening to, listening to China. Is that well, if
2: that? you, a sophisticated listening post. All right. Um, and uh, a lot else besides. Uh, I mean, it is a, a hugely important uh, centre, uh, and it's it, it's close. You know, it's it's located more or less near. It's near Ayers Rock, um, in, in pretty much in the centre of Australia. Um, and I mean, it, it, knowledge of that is in the public domain. But I mean, I don't think I should go into detail about what it actually does. That would be indiscreet. <laughs> um,
1: well, if I if I may, because you brought up Five Eyes, um, w- which is the intelligence sharing network, of course that involves Canada, the U.S., the U.K., New Zealand, and Australia. Uh, I understand, of course, Sir Richard, you are limited in what you can disclose about your uh, previous reincarnation as the Chief of MI6. But what can you tell us about how Australia contributed to that network? Um, what strengths did it bring to the table? Was it primarily the Western launch pad for keeping tabs on China using installations like Pine Gap or, or was it more than that?
2: Um, well, I think I, I would say its importance in the alliance has grown exponentially over the past decade and the Australians have developed their own sophisticated Intelligence and security community. You have ASIS, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service. Um, you have ASIO, their security intelligence organisation. That's the internal service, and then the Australians also have a, a very sophisticated intercept capability. So, that, and it's not just through geography. You know, they have become important contributors as their community has matured. And developed, and um, in the they're, they're, they're important um, in the Indo Pacific region as a whole. They have, uh, you know, wide scale deployment which stretches as far as the Middle East. And I think the question that faces us and, 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 and is particularly potent for a country like Australia because of its proximity to China, you know, what comes next? Uh, I mean, China is emerging clearly as a global power. Um, It is insisting on its rights and influence in its own region, but clearly its ambitions are much more extensive than that. And I think that, you know, we, 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 we have to develop a new, a security regime, which copes with China's presence as a superpower, I, I, I mean, at the moment, I think, find the situation rather alarming, you know, because China is so insistent on making its own rules and claiming that these rules have international legal force. But, you know, if you've got a gorilla sitting in the living room, it's quite hard to ask the gorilla to move to another armchair if it doesn't want to. <laughs> and I think that that's where we are. Right.
1: And, and, right. And so when the Philippines, um, launched, uh, launched their complaint about China's behavior in this, in the South China sea, and it went to international arbitration, the Chinese took no notice yeah. of, of that and they have carried on doing as the, as the, as they want. So, in in a way, I mean, who can blame the Chinese if no one is actually going to, to, to to either you know, compel or or enforce them um, in that to abide by international law?
2: Well, I mean, China sees itself as righting you know, the wrongs of the nineteenth century. Um, really, I wouldn't say getting its own back. That's maybe, but 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 pushing aside the humiliation that that the Chinese empire suffered in the 18th and 19th centuries at the hands of the West, which it did. I mean, it was, you know, effectively dismembered in a rather ruthless fashion. Um, And I think historically it feels justified now in righting those wrongs in the manner that it chooses to do, making its own rules, And you know, because of its economic and military power, it's going to be difficult to resist. Um, I think at the moment, you know, we, we it's very hard to explain and describe, you know, what the world might look like in 30 to 40 years' time, assuming it takes that long to build some new security regime.
1: So we've, t- so we've talked about how China is using a number of different... Ways to interfere in in countries in other countries, democracies, to gain access to political elites, to our institutions, as you experienced yourself in Cambridge. Uh, we, we've talked about Chinese expansion uh, in the Pacific, and we've talked about its debt trap diplomacy. I just want to ask you one last question: If you were advising Australia. Let's say back in 2017, when Julie was working on this white paper, what advice would you give her on how to engage with China on trade and on diplomacy?
2: Well, you may be well, I, I, you may be surprised, but by talking to them in the right way at the right level and making it absolutely clear where you know Australia's boundaries were in management of the relationship. I, I mean, I. I do firmly believe in talking not just to one's competitors, but to one's enemies as well, uh, and, and, and and engaging in dialogue and having some sort of bilateral infrastructure which allows for the treatment and discussion of problems on an almost constant basis. Um, I mean, this may sound somewhat naive, but... Uh, Show me an alternative. And of course, Australia, because in terms of GDP and size, it's not a large country. I mean, it's geographically large, but I'm not sure where it comes in, 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 in let's say, the economic league tables. Um, you know, its alliance with the United States, its alliance with the Anglosphere, its future relationship with Japan and with India are going to be absolutely crucial in counterbalancing the dragon. Um, Australia can do a certain amount on its own, um, but needs the right allies. And it's obvious who the allies are. I mean, India, Japan, the United States, and to an extent, the Anglosphere. And, of course, uh, that that crucial point that um, Julie Bishop made at the beginning of her interview when she talked of um australia's oceanic power that is for them the crucial way to as it were to to show the chinese that they are prepared to make dispositions to counter the chinese threat and to talk to the chinese from a position of strength to the extent that they can build strength
1: but but what but what does that mean? Does that mean building themselves up as a stronger naval power?
2: Yeah, I think um, you're going to see them well they've, uh, interestingly, they've massively increased their naval spending, and I think they need to they, they, they need to increase it even further. Um, we need uh, to, you know the, the idea that we're going to have to, as it were, fight a land war in Europe seems to me. Uh, even given Russia's behaviour over Ukraine unlikely. But we are going to need a powerful navy and, and powerful naval forces to, as it were, contribute to international security, particularly given the way that the Chinese have been behaving, are likely to behave in the future. And, for example, the problems that Australia have as a result
1: but 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 say you know you say that Australia is increasing its defence spending. You think it should reassert itself as an oceanic naval power. If it does that, won't China see that as a provocation?
2: To an extent, yes. But you know Australia is not India. If you see what I mean, um, you know it, it, it it's 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 size in proportion. I, I mean, there's no way that Australia is ever going to attack China. Um, it would be very, very hard for any nation to portray Australia as a as a hostile and aggressive power. What we're talking about is, you know, Australian security in the face of a expansionist and possibly a revanchist China. But as long as there is a consistent approach by the U.S., Pacific Fleet, Um, and uh, as it were, there. This is the point you know you raised. This is why I don't see a distancing between the United States and Australia on the strategic issue of how to deal with China. And of course, you know, at the moment, this this is the 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 strategic question uh, in the forefront of the United States thinking um, about the future of global security i mean okay ukraine but i am sort of putting you you ukraine is 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 a real european problem but it doesn't have the breadth and the implications and the strategic importance of you know how to deal with an expanding china
1: what is the future of global security like we could we yeah. can spend days well, uh, well, we can spend on, a lot of time discussion. discussing that
2: but it's interesting how you start yeah. talking about Australia. Mm. and immediately you know the whole discussion opens up into something much bigger than just you know local Australian foreign policy.
1: T- totally right, totally right. No, no man is an island, and in this case Australia is so much more than just an island on yeah. between the Pacific and the Indian Oceans.
2: Absolutely.
1: That's it for this episode of One Decision. I'm Julia McFarlane. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And get in touch. What decisions have impacted your lives and your part of the world? We would love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at One Decision Pod. And we're on Facebook at One Decision Podcast. See you next time.